0: Okay, we're going to be in Mark 16 this morning. The final chapter. Today and next week, like I said, we'll wrap this up. Um, although this is some of the best part, right? So, <clears throat> the question that has <clears throat> been driving us as we have looked at the book of Mark and the story he told centers on... Jesus and his kingdom. We've seen Jesus teaching about the kingdom and then enacting it wherever he went. We've seen Jesus cast out demons and heal the sick, forgive people, feed multitudes, and exhibit power over the natural world as well. We've watched him clear the temple as a revolutionary act against the corrupt system dominating the sacrificial system there. We've seen him warn the disciples about the ultimate destruction of the temple and what that meant in terms of bringing an end to the current way of things in Jerusalem at the time. We've learned at his feet and by his example what his kingdom was about and how it was so very different than the kingdoms of the religious leaders or Herod or Caesar or any sense. We've witnessed The anger and animosity of the Pharisees, the priests, and the scribes whose way of life Jesus threatened by proclaiming this entirely new kingdom. Over the past two weeks, we've seen them devise a plan, arrest Jesus on false charges, conduct a mockery of a trial, and then pressure the Roman governor Pilate to execute him so that they could keep their hands clean in the eyes of the people. Finally, a week ago, we looked at his crucifixion and what that meant in terms of the kingdom he proclaimed, a kingdom his followers assumed would never come as the stone was rolled over the entrance to the tomb, sealing his death. This morning, we're going to watch his kingdom become a reality and talk a bit about what that means for us here and now. So let's dive in. Follow along with me, if you will, in Mark 16, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking in the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Okay, may God bless the reading of his word. As we noticed a week ago, according to Mark 15, 40 through 41, there was a number of women present at the crucifixion, Mark names three of them. This morning as we move into chapter 16, we once again follow the women as they headed out to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. The twelve disciples and all the other followers of Jesus are nowhere to be found. It's just Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, parentheses and Joseph, he's part of that, Uh, and Salome. The same three women mark had mentioned before, being present at the cross. And this isn't a casual detail, as with all these details. It's not casual that Mark is doing this and and telling the story this way that the facts are laid out as they are. It's, It's not just chance. Mark wanted his readers to recognize that these three women were at the cross And we're heading to the tomb because they were basically the most devoted disciples in those terrible moments. But that's not all. Mark was revealing something about the kingdom as he has been all along. Remember that his entire approach to telling this story has revolved around Jesus and his kingdom. And this is no exception. So what does this show us about Jesus' kingdom? In much of the ancient world, and in the Jewish tradition as well, women were not given much standing. There were a few exceptions for very wealthy women, but for the most part, women were treated dismissively and were often considered little more than property. As we noted, in Judaism, they could not offer testimony in court or before the religious council. So why would Mark be telling a story where two of the most important events experienced, were experienced by women and then established as fact by the testimony of women? Well, the obvious answer is because that's the way it happened, clearly, but that doesn't really address why, why that would be part of how God unfolded this story. Why would the Father's big plan concerning his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven rest in the hands of women who could be dismissed? The most obvious answer is that God's kingdom was going to be different than any other kingdom, and women were going to be valued differently than in any other kingdom. We could go on into a long exposition about this, and if you would like to talk about it after the service, I'm more than willing to do so. But the shorter version is that God was restoring the relational balance that existed before the fall and the curse. In God's kingdom, women were going to have status and value and a voice. They were no longer going to be dismissed or treated as property. They were no longer going to be dominated or subjugated by men in a hierarchy system. They were going to be on a level playing field in this new kingdom. We have to remember that Eve was created as Adam's equal, his helpmate. They were together on that. Only in the curse was she subjugated to his rule. Genesis 3.16 makes that very clear. Jesus' death brought the power of the curse to an end. And in the new kingdom, the curse was being unmade and unraveled. Mark was displaying the sort of the first glimmers of this reality of our new identity in Christ being bigger and more important than any of our other identifying factors. And Paul later would clarify this in Galatians 3, 27 through 29, saying, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. In Christ, we are equal heirs to the kingdom of God. And Mark recorded this as it was unfolding. But there was so much more. Because Mark also made a point of including the fact that it was the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, right? And this is significant because of what it represents. Since we know that Sabbath has always been observed on Saturday, that means that the first day of creation in Genesis represented Sunday. Even though it wasn't called that yet, that's the day it was. And Jesus rose on Sunday, on the first day of the week. That signifies the beginning of a new creation, which had begun not at the end of this one, but right in the middle of it. It's not complete, but it has begun, and in Christ we get to be a part of it as well, which means we have things to do. We talked before about loving God and our neighbor, and this is a part of that. Loving our neighbor doesn't just mean thinking nice thoughts about them. It means living as sacrificial servants for them, just as Jesus did for his neighbor's. We know that when Jesus returns, he will bring this new creation to its fullest possible expression by finally fully renewing all things and setting everything right. In the meantime, the new creation of his kingdom is a matter of both our being in him and living as new creations in the world that is broken and passing away. We have a responsibility— to take care of the world, to bring beauty into it as we are able, to make life better for those around us. From that Sunday forward, that's exactly what we see the followers of Jesus doing. They followed right in his footsteps and proclaimed him as king while they taught about his kingdom and performed miracles which displayed its power. Power like no other. A power which took on all the hatred and violence humanity could muster and then walked out the other side, defeating sin and death in the grave. Because Jesus' power wasn't about attacking those who attacked him. It wasn't about revenge or retaliation. His power wasn't about holding grudges and destroying his enemies. It was about forgiving them which is another aspect of this new creation that we get to be a part of. We are enabled and empowered to forgive our enemies just as Jesus did. To love them by living as sacrificial servants for them because they are our neighbors as well. all this brings us then to the empty tomb. When the women arrived, the giant stone had been removed So they went in, only to find a young man in a white robe sitting on the right side. Now I've said before that I don't believe there are meaningless details included in these stories and descriptions, which means there's something significant going on with this young man in white. Let's look at what we know first. Mark described him as young, using the Greek word nianiskos, which was used of young men under the age of 40 but more specifically it was used of young servants. We also read that he was dressed in a white robe, and here Mark used the word stole, which was used to describe long robes worn as a symbol of character. The father in the prodigal story wore a long robe and had to pull it up to run to his son. He was therefore shockingly undignified in the story, which was part of the point Jesus was making about the way the Father loves us. In this situation, the long white robe symbolized both dignity and holiness. We also see that he was seated on the right as you walked into the tomb on the right, and that's most likely where Jesus' body would have been laid on a sort of shelf that was cut into the rock. Typically in Jewish custom at the time, the bodies would remain there for anywhere up to a year, and then the bones would be taken and washed and placed in a small stone ossuary box, uh, and then they would move that back into the tomb, and they would save space in the tombs. Now, with all that said, with a few exceptions, most of the commentaries that I read this week assume this young man is one of the angels recorded by the other gospel writers, and that may be true. But that doesn't explain his significance. This is the beginning of a new creation. God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And this young man represents a new Adam with a new message. Not a message of sin and death like the first Adam. This young man in white, a servant full of dignity, sitting where Jesus had been, was the first to proclaim Jesus had risen, that sin and death could not hold him, that the way of the world and its power had been broken from the inside out. This whole scene alarmed the women. But after assuring them and proclaiming Jesus had risen, the young man told them to go tell the disciples and Peter to meet him in Galilee. In the last part of chapter 14, Mark detailed Peter's Denial of Jesus And after the incident in the garden Peter had followed at a distance And made his way to the courtyard Of the high priest's home Where they were holding the trial There he denied Jesus three times When confronted about being a follower And knowing him Here In the face of that Peter is being included In the kingdom In spite of taking up A sword and attempting to use power to overcome power, in spite of his three denials that he even knew who Jesus was, in spite of the fact that he was nowhere to be found when Jesus was crucified, and was still actively, cowardly, hiding at the moment. In spite of all that, the young man told the women to include Peter. That's the power of the resurrection. We are not included because we are the bravest or most powerful. We are not included because we stand firm in the face of conflict. We are not included for any of those reasons. We we are included in spite of ourselves because of Jesus, because he has included us even though we have done everything in our own power, done everything the world's way. We've denied him and hidden from the certain conflict that comes from being his follower, just like Peter. But just like the women, just like the disciples who fled, and just like Peter, we are included. Let me say that a different way. No matter who you are or what you have done in Christ, you are included. Now most, if not all of you, will have a note in your Bible after verse 8 that states the rest of chapter 16 is not in the earliest manuscripts, so let me say just a few words about that before moving on. So we don't have any original writings of the New Testament. We don't have anything that was first written, we just have copies, and often copies of copies. The earliest texts that we do have are from the 4th century, and those two texts, codex. Uh, I might even say this right, Seneiakadis, Seneiakadis, I can't say it right, and Codex Vaticanus. The last few verses, 9 through 20, are not included. They're not found. Now some have claimed that this means that they were added later. And interestingly, though, a bishop by the name of Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who himself was a disciple of John, wrote a treatise against heresies and quoted from Mark 16, 19 to make a point. He did that in the year 180, well before these two texts that lack those verses. There's a whole slew of arguments for and against including them, but it seems fair to include include them based on the fact that Irenaeus did. They They may have been added a bit later by someone other than Mark, but they don't alter our understanding of what happened. And we have to understand that this was a fairly common practice in Jewish writings. For example, it's widely held by Christian scholars that the prophet Isaiah likely only wrote the first 39 chapters of the book bearing his name, while chapters 40 through 65 seem to have been written at a later time. All that to say whether or not this last part of Mark was added later by someone other than Mark does not change its value or its importance. Basically, it's just a a summarization of what Mark had already written with a, a really brief version of Luke's story about the two men headed to Emmaus and the inclusion of what we call the Great Commission, which we can also find in Matthew 28. All in all, we get one other piece of info that the disciples were mourning and weeping and did not believe Mary's story or the story of the other two disciples uh, that they told of meeting Jesus on the road. None of the disciples gathered in Jerusalem to believe those stories. And this de- these details seem to paint an extremely specific picture. Basically, none of Jesus' disciples understood what was going on. None of them. To be fair, it often seems like we don't either, uh, and we're on the other side of this whole thing, so you would think we might. But the disciples, they were right in the middle of it, and, and they were defeated. Their spirits were crushed. Their hope was lost. Jesus was dead, and that was that. Except he wasn't dead. He was alive. He walked out of the tomb because it couldn't hold him. Now doesn't that just fill you with joy? that death does not have the final word and the disciples they didn't have a clue they were in tears even though Jesus told them at least three different times that this was what was going to happen in mark 8:31 we read that he began to teach them and the son of man that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. In Mark 9, 31-32, we see that he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And in Mark 10, 32 through 34, we find that taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. Jesus gave them all the info they needed to know this was coming to be ready for it, and ready to move forward when it happened. But instead of waiting outside the tomb Sunday morning, they were huddled in a locked room crying. Which is along the lines, maybe, of how we often handle things too, right? The things Jesus wants us to do have been made clear. And we'll talk more about that next week, but we're familiar with the mission statement, right? To go into all the world... Proclaiming the good news that Jesus is alive and is king over all creation and that we can be a part of what he is doing in setting the world right. But instead of getting busy with that, we are often full of fear, hiding out, worrying, crying, just like the disciples. And even when the news came, they didn't believe it, they just couldn't trust that it was real that was actually happening. They had stopped at the cross, as we all should, but they didn't move on to the empty tomb. We absolutely have to move on to the empty tomb, because that's where we discover that the baggage of our past, the darkness that we have carried with us, full of regret and bitterness, all the hurt we have caused and all the hurt we have received All the things Jesus took to the cross and all the things that were buried with him, they are all gone. The tomb is empty. Not just because Jesus is alive, but because all our garbage is gone, which means we're free. We don't have to live in fear or hide away or worry about what is going to happen in this crazy world. We can trust in the risen Savior and King. We can believe that Jesus has risen and that our true enemies, sin and death, are defeated. That Jesus has launched a new creation right here in the middle of this one that is dying. That he has established his kingdom by dying for it and set it in motion by rising again. We can have confidence in the work that he has done. Confidence that it is finished, just as he said. And that because of what he has done, we can have hope. That we can live in a new world full of possibility for light and life and love. Because that's what Jesus' kingdom is all about. Will you pray with me?